0: This episode of Molly Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at QuickenLoans.com/fool. This is Motley Fool Answers, and I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter.
1: Hi, Allison. Hi, Bro. Always a pleasure to be back in a small room with only one exit with you.
0: I don't know what you're trying to (laughs) insinuate with that, but here we are again.
1: Here we are. Highlight of my week, truly is. Aww. It's true.
0: In today's episode, we're going to give you a sneak peek into Fool Fest, the woodstock of foolishness that happens every year at Motley Fool HQ. Fools from around the world get together for two days of investing, they get to hear from Motley Fool analysts, famous authors and thought leaders, and they even get hugs from me. Not special hugs, just regular hugs. I'm a hugger. You're a hugger. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers and today's question comes from Josh. Josh writes, Back a ways, you two talked about a guy who had saved up money, put it in gold, and had buried it on his property. I honestly don't remember us ever talking about this, but Josh, I believe you. <laughs> Josh continues, Well, that's practically my dad. He'd placed all of his retirement money in silver and some gold bullion. Help! He invested around August of 2015, so it's actually increased in value. However, I believe in diversification and would like to see him on in other investments. Furthermore, some of his vestments are likely to be my inheritance, so naturally, I'd like him to invest wisely." That's some good long-term thinking there, (laughs) Josh. That's right. "...Hasn't the stock market outperformed gold and silver over the long-term? Could you give me some statistics to help encourage him to diversify?"
1: Well, Josh, you have a great question here for you. He might be thinking actually about when I talked about how my dad buried cash around his house. Maybe that's what he was thinking about? So I can relate, Josh. I have relatives who bury, bury assets at random places. Um,
0: (laughs) We forgot to tell you that Robert Brokamp is a squirrel. Surprise! (laughs) He's been a squirrel this whole time! Nuts!
1: Anyways, uh, you bring up a good question because uh, these days, actually, this year, Silver and gold have been doing much better than the stock market so there's a lot more renewed interest. both of them are up or almost about 20% so far in 2016 as opposed to the stock market, which is like just about flat. So you're seeing more interest in it. You may have seen more of the infomercials on TV as I have recently trying to get people to buy gold. Um, but you are right in the sense that over the long term, stocks have outperformed gold. And it's, First of all, it's important to think about why you're investing in something. You're basically using cash today to buy something that will provide cash in the future. and You can do that with a productive asset like a stock. You buy it today, hopefully in the future. Not only has it gone up in price, but it is providing dividends. You're using that cash to accomplish a goal, usually retirement. Gold and silver, they don't do that. They're not businesses. They don't produce cash. And they have, they have limited industrial uses, so basically when you're buying gold today, you are just hoping that in the future there's more demand for it, so much more demand that the price will be higher. But historically speaking, that hasn't been a reliable bet. Gold peaked around 1980 at around $800 an ounce. It then collapsed and didn't reach that point again until 2008. So there you're looking at 28 years of where someone didn't make any money. And if you look at from 1975 to 2014, as I did for an article from about a year ago, if you look at 10-year holding periods, gold lost money about a third of the time, whereas the stock market made money about 95% of the time. So, generally speaking, gold and silver are not good long-term investments. A couple other things to think about, also, that if you buy a stock today in a regular taxable account, hold it for the long-term, sell it for a profit. Right now, the capital gains tax is probably going to be about fifteen percent for most people. Collectibles, which is often the case for gold and silver, including the biggest gold and silver ETFs, those are taxed at long-term capital gains rates of twenty-eight percent. So, not only do you have to make a better return to make gold and silver pay off, but you have to overcome that you're going to probably pay more taxes too. The third issue is how are you going to hold the investment? If you buy a stock, it's held by your broker. It's very easy to buy and sell. You just click a button. You can do that too with these gold and silver ETFs. But what your dad is doing, holding the actual gold,
0: physical chest of gold, exactly, and silver. yeah,
1: holding it somewhere. Um, if he wants to sell it, he has to go out, find someone who's going to buy, give him a good price. It's not as liquid. You have to protect it. You have to insure it. And if he really is like hiding it around the house. Hopefully you'll be able to find it when he passes away, but that may not be the case. And so when you hold that estate sale and some kid buys some old trunk for 10 bucks, there'll be a surprise for that kid and he'll be very happy. Thank you very much.
0: I would add Josh, that as we know, money decisions are emotional decisions. so maybe it'd be more important also to rather than just throwing stats and returned figures at your father, maybe talk to him a little bit and find out why is he investing in gold. Like why is he is he nervous that the whole economy is gonna collapse and he has, he wants to hold on to a tangible asset? Um you know, why I think it's more important to get to the why and the emotional why to Because if he's a to. pirate, that's why <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Maybe your dad's Maybe a pirate. He's a pirate. <laughs> so if your dad's a pirate, then okay, then I understand why he's burying gold. But assuming he's not a pirate Find out emotionally why he's making this decision and then I think you'll be better prepared to come at it.
1: Yeah, you really hit on something very important and that when people are pouring all of their money into gold or silver or something like that, it's usually out of fear. Fear of high inflation, fear of the collapse of the currency, fear of some sort of chaos. Um, and generally speaking, it just hasn't held up that well during times when you would need it. I mean, if you think about it, if, if society really collapses, who wants a nice looking ring or a necklace? Yeah. People are yeah. going to want things, other things than something like gold. He should gold be or investing whatever. in soup. That's right, canned soup. Canned soup.
0: <laughs> I'm just saying.
1: Just saying.
0: All right, thank you, Josh. Good luck with that. Um, having conversations with your dad about money is so much fun. <laughs> so,
1: but you know what? I'm glad he's doing it because yeah. he's thinking down the term not only for his father's well being. But in the end, he will either inherit it, or if his father does something silly with his money and runs out of money, chances are then he's going to be responsible for helping his dad All out. Right.
0: Josh is absolutely doing the right thing. We it's love you, Josh. Just not an easy thing. So good luck. This episode of Molly Full Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Bro. Tell me about how much of a pain in the patoot it is to sell your house and buy a new one.
1: If I could show you my patoot, you'd see a lot of pain right now because <laughs> we put our house on the market and it was problematic.
0: Yeah, it's not fun. But here's no. the good news. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans is here to help you make at least one aspect of buying a home a little less painful. If you're looking to refinance or, like I said, buy a new home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at QuickenLoans.com. Eight relatively easy steps, and you're on your way. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS consumeraccess.org, number
2: 3030. Me,
0: right. am, we recently held Fool Fest, our annual Woodstock of Foolish Investing. It's held here at Full HQ for members of. Services like Supernova, a million dollar portfolio, etc. It's two days of speakers and foolishness, and we thought we'd share the highlights with you, our dear listeners. So, here you go. Here you go. First up, we have CEO Tom Gardner. He shared ten rules for investing the Motley Fool way, and these are a few of those rules.
3: Live below our means. Um, saving is the engine of great investment, and it's not something that's taught in schools. I learned it uh, from my dad driving around um, during my high school years in the state of Massachusetts when it was going through a recession. And dad, I remember um, driving through a, a, an area that was having real difficulty, a town that was having real difficulty in Massachusetts. My dad was saying, you know, this is, there's a lot of pain here right now, but just remember that if you get in situations like this, as long as you can live below your means. And dad's key point to us was, um, spend money on experiences, not things. Things just don't really bring that much joy to life, but experiences do. Learning, travel, getting to know people, starting a business. These are the ways to deploy your capital um, to learn about the world. I encourage everyone here to own at least 30 stocks. Now, if you're a Warren Buffett aficionado, you know that he has sometimes said, all anyone needs are eight punch holes on that ticket and just buy and hold those eight companies for the rest of your life. It's funny though, and I'm not gonna pick on Warren Buffett, he's a hero of mine and ours at The Motley Fool, but he's bought a lot more than eight investments in his life. So, and I also think that if you're gonna have just eight or six or 12 or 14, I think that should be really deliberate. You should really know why. You should probably have a lot of business experience and and you should have, again, made that choice because getting that diversification across more than 30 companies. It isn't just that you'll get different industries, different market cap sizes, maybe stocks from different countries as well, but you'll also be able to see, gosh, those days that are painful when all 30 of your companies are down. And and even though that will really hurt in in one way, it will also give you context. Oh, this must just be a terrible day for the market. It's not that I'm terrible. It's just the market moves in directions. You'll see full industries go down, even though only one company had bad news. So I really believe in diversification across more than 30 holdings, no more than 15% in a single position. This is definitely a rule that I would welcome somebody saying to me, "Ah, I'm breaking that one. But I'd be really deliberate about it. I have a close friend who worked, not at an executive level, at a mid-level role at Enron. I had another very close friend who worked um, as an analyst at Lehman. Um, these, These are people who ended up with a massive amount of their personal wealth in a single holding. And it's natural to have that happen if you work at the company and you're getting discounted opportunity to buy that stock or you're getting stock options. But I just encourage you to really think through what it means to have something that's adding up to more than 15% of your wealth and to really be deliberate about making that decision. For the rest of us, I think that's a pretty good cutoff to start saying, hey, there are so many great recommendations across Motley Fool services. I ought to be able to find some other stocks. And in my family, you know, our, our, our father's uh, most successful investment was the Washington Post. He held it for a number of years. It became a large position percentage of his portfolio, and thankfully, as the industry started to turn a little bit sour, he began to just say, I'm going to take the tax. It hurts, but it's better to have all these great companies I could be invested in, all these things I can learn about in the world. Uh, Why don't I diversify my portfolio a little bit more? Expect that four out of your ten investments will disappoint you. Four out of ten. That's true at The Motley Fool. The more rule breakery innovative high growth Maybe you'll have 5 out of 10 that disappoint you, but you'll get some super winners in the 5 that succeed for you. So just expect that like baseball and like so many other aspects in life, 40% of the time we're, we're, not, we're not above average. Uh, we aren't at the Motley Fool, and I don't think any of us should expect to be, and that's probably true of decisions we make in life as well. All of your stocks will fall more than 50% at some point. Look at your portfolio and cut in half every position and ask yourself how you would feel. In the ideal, that doesn't happen all at once, but sometimes it does happen all at once, as we know, in the last uh, 20 years in the US. So run the numbers and evaluate your emotional state when you look at a company like Amazon and see it down 60% from October 2007 to October 2009. Berkshire. Hathaway, you wouldn't think it possible. October 2008 to February 2009. That's not many months right there. October 2008, February 2009, down 50%. Starbucks, November 2006 to November 2008, down 83%. November 2006, 2008, one of the greatest companies in American history, up 24% a year since 1992. But in order to get those returns, you have to be able to hold when those stocks get utterly crushed. And I didn't even cite Amazon's biggest fall, which came in 2000, 2001, 2002, when it fell from $90 a share to seven. So we need to set our portfolios up. It's one of the reasons I think you should have more than 30 stocks, no position larger than 15%, and at least have that thought in mind as you're building portfolio, because your stocks will get crushed at different points along the way. I think what I like the most about that
1: is Tom is um, likes to be very realistic about what people can expect as investors and that you really do have to be willing to put up with some investments that drop 50-75% and hold on in hoping to get some of the, the returns that at least the company has seen, knowing that not all of them will do that. There was a wall at Fool Fest where people were able to put down basically things that they learned from being with The Motley Fool. And I think the things I found the most heartening were the people who said, I now feel better about handling volatility. I now know that I have a resource to go to during the tough times. I don't panic. I think I don't someone panic. wrote. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's it is crucial.
0: Next, we have Nell Minow. She's a movie critic, shareholder advocate, and friend of the Fool. She's been dubbed the Queen of Good Corporate Governance by Business Week, and she was interviewed by Chris Hill at Fool Fest. Uh, people who listen to Motley Fool Money will be very familiar with her name. It just so happens that she helped us answer a listener question, and that listener question came from Brent. Brent wrote, I have this year voted over several thousand times, but please, before you go call on the feds, I'm talking about shareholder votes. I've heard the stories from all the economists that tell me my vote doesn't count for president and I'm better off doing something else. Is that the same for stock votes? If I'm not Buffett, do I really matter? So First, though, before we go any farther and hear Nell Minow's answer, what is what is a shareholder vote the same thing as proxy vote?
1: Yes. So every company has an annual meeting, and the board of directors will offer proposals that the shareholders vote on, and then there's some proposals from the shareholders themselves, and you're allowed to vote on them. If you don't attend, you can do it via proxy, and that could be you send it in, or nowadays it's it's more likely to be electronic. This morning I got my proxy for Facebook, and I could just click on the thirteen or so proposals and register my opinion.
0: So Brent, Nell Minow would say that proxy voting does matter, and here's her guide to helping you decide how to vote in a quick and easy fashion. I'm gonna tell you now my 15 second rule for
1: voting a proxy, okay? You open up the proxy, you read it from the bottom up. If there is a shareholder proposal on the proxy, vote no on all the directors. If there is no shareholder proposal on the proxy, vote yes on the directors, no on the pay. Vote no on the pay, always, except for Berkshire Hathaway. Vote <laughs> no on all the pay plans, vote yes on the shareholder proposals, and if if a board of directors cannot negotiate with a large shareholder like CalPERS or Tia cref or uh, the City of New York Pension Fund, then that is a bad board, and they don't desver- deserve your
0: support. So that's my 15-second how to vote a proxy. So, bro, is there anything you'd want to add to what Nell said?
1: Right. So, when you look at the proxy, she said, "Read from the bottom up." That's because the first few proposals usually come from the company itself, and then they come with the shareholder proposals. So, she thinks you should start at the bottom with the shareholder proposals. So, for example, I got my proxy from Facebook. Like I said, the first couple are about approving the board of directors and their pay. When you start at the bottom. The last one is a stockholder proposal regarding a gender pay equity report. And then right there it says board recommendation, vote against it.
0: Why would we want to have a gender pay equity study right. done? Exactly.
1: Well, you could look at Facebook's 184 page PDF that explains the proposal and why the board says it's not necessary. And they lay out all the things that they're already doing. They feel like, I think they feel like just an unnecessary expense. Um, But one of Nell's points is that a good board of directors pays attention to the shareholders and finds a way to negotiate these things without it going to a vote. If they can't do that, then they're not a good board. Um, And and This is not specifically about Facebook in general, Um, but one of her big issues is that a lot of what a board of directors does is basically just rubber stamps everything. Uh, the company wants to do, including CEO pay, and they make a lot of money in the process. So, for example, if you're on the board, a regular board member, outside board member on Facebook, you get fifty thousand dollars a year and three hundred thousand dollars worth of stock.
0: Wow! To meet
1: quarterly. Now these are big-brained people. Um, very accomplished folks who are coming in to help out so you have to pay them something right but we have seen a lot especially over the last 15 years of board directors not really doing their jobs of protecting shareholders not really keeping the CEOs accountable so I would say the main point to take away from Nell's advice and also just the general idea of proxies is that don't just don't just disregard it it's really interesting to read the proposals and to see how much these folks are making and to understand the company a little bit better just by understanding who's on the board. She was saying in an interview that when she first got into this business, OJ Simpson was like on five boards, including on an auditor board. I mean, a lot of these people are just there to lend their name and a certain level of credibility, but they don't do anything in terms of helping the business. As she pointed out in her talk, Berkshire Hathaway is very different when it comes to that. Nell also mentioned the CalPERS, which stands for the California Public Employees Retirement System, which basically they manage all the money for the public employees uh, in California, their health care benefits and their pension benefits. They must be massive. Massive. Uh, they also publish how they vote on their proxy statements. So Nell recommended that as a resource in case you want a little bit of more direction on how to vote on a proxy. Go to CalPERS website and they indicate. How they voted, and since it's so big, they own just just about every stock out there. Huh.
0: One of the keynote speakers was Dan Pink, and he's the best-selling author of Drive and To Sell Is Human, among others. He spoke with Tom Gardner in front of Fool Fest and told this helpful story to motivate even the most stubborn of people—a teenager.
2: So let's say that I happen. To, let's say that somebody has a 17-year-old daughter. All right, and hypothetically, let's say her name is Eliza, Eliza Pink, and. Um, Let's say you want to get her to, to clean up her room. Now, How many of you are parents out here? OK, so you've seen this movie before. OK, so what do, what do you do? So what, you can, what do you do? So you're frustrated. So you start your instinct, in some ways, your muscle memory is to say, is to yell, is to threaten, is to do something coercive. Uh, sometimes people are, you know, OK, we'll bribe you. And those kinds of things might work in the short term. But, but this technique. Um, Which is really interesting. It's actually a technique. It's it's a technique called motivational interviewing It's something that's used actually in in therapy and it goes like this. So you ask two seemingly irrational questions. So on the first question you say I Probably should not have picked my own daughter for this, but I'm I'm already down that rabbit hole. So you say um, Eliza on a scale of 1 to 10 How ready this is the first question on a scale of 1 to 10? How ready are you to clean your room? Okay Now she's likely to give an answer of two, okay? Now those of you who are—all you raise your hands—all of you who are parents, your blood is boiling already, right? Because you want to say a two, you know, okay. So, but you hold back. Okay, Eliza, you're two. Here comes the second question. This is the big deal. This is the this is the major key right here. Second question is this. Okay, Eliza, you're two. Why didn't you pick a lower number? Okay, now, what's going on here? So all this, so why aren't you a one? So Eliza might have to say, well, you know, I'm 17 and you know, I should be able to take care of myself. You know, when I lose stuff, you and mom never know where anything is. Um, you know, I might be able to get to school faster and not have to race out of the house every morning and then I could actually sort of be a little bit more mellow when I got to school and maybe do a little studying before I got to school and see my friends. And so what's happening there? She begins articulating her own reasons for doing something. And what's axiomatic here is that when people have their own reasons for doing something, they believe those reasons more deeply, adhere to the behavior more strongly. And so this goes to some of the ideas in Drive which is that, you know, human beings by their very nature. I think are autonomous they want to have they want to be self-determined circumstances can crush that can suffocate that but at our at our, at our roots we are people who want to have some kind of sovereignty over what we do how we do it and one of the best ways to motivate people one of the best ways to motivate yourselves is to find the context the situation and the circumstance where that innate autonomy can come to the surface very few very rarely do people say I'm a one Okay, Um, usually, you you don't get anything over four usually because it's a problem, okay? When you say it's a one, a one is sometimes very revealing. I'm a one. Okay, Um, what can we do to take this to a two? And what you'll find is that there's usually some kind of obstacle there. You guys are always making me set the table every night and empty the dishwasher and mow the lawn and, you know, or whatever, or you know what, this, this particular time of year I have this extracurricular thing and I'm just so busy, it's like, I'm overwhelmed here. And so, if you guys give me some relief, maybe I can do a little bit better here. And so, when you say, What can we do to get you to a two? It's usually people are a one because there's some kind of big obstacle in the way. But, but in most cases, people are like twos, threes, and fours.
1: Have you read Drive, Allison? I have not, re- I've not. I've re- not read Drive. So, one of Dan Pink's main points is that uh, the 20th century was about extrinsic motivation, mostly pay people more. This century is going to be more about intrinsic motivation. And he said several studies that found that for jobs that are very basically mechanical, very rules-based, if you offer people more money, you will get higher performance. As soon as you need a little bit of cognitive skills, problem-solving, creative work, anything like that, money actually can be a deterrent. What you really need to do is find people's intrinsic motivation, and it relies on a few things, autonomy, people want to be self-directed, B. mastery, people want to um, Become really good at something. He uses examples of people like musicians who know they will never get paid or people who write for Wikipedia. Like, why would you write for Wikipedia? You don't get any money, but people just want that sort of mastery. And then, purpose, having some sort of work that contributes to something bigger than you. So, I think what his point with this about his teenager is you, you're getting the teenager to talk about their own motivation for doing that. Right.
0: Well, if you want to get more of FoolFest, Fest, you can. Uh, these were just a few clips. So if you want to hear the rest of Tom's Ten Rules for Investing the Foolish Way um, or hear more from Nell, who's fascinating, or Dan Pink, you can go to digitalpass.fool.com answers. And for ninety-nine bucks, you can actually get access to all of the presentations, video presentations at Foolfest. So Not only are you going to get the keynotes uh, for people like Nell Minow that you heard today and Dan Pink, but you're also going to get deep dives into options and investing in different companies that you may love, like Chipotle and Facebook. And I think Bro even did a couple presentations. Isn't that right? That's true. There were breakouts on small caps and dividends and a lot of great speeches by people you love, like Morgan Housel, on behavioral finance and getting to know thyself as an investor. The bad news is that it's only going to be available until June 15. So, if you want to check out everything that happened at Fool Fest, you got to hurry up and do it. DigitalPass.Fool.com. Listen to me. What I say. A few weeks ago, we asked you to send in some of the money or life advice that was passed down from your parents or grandparents. And we've received some real gems. And it's such perfect timing because this is graduation season and everyone's hearing all these motivational, inspirational speeches. And so we're going to share some of the ones that have come in from you guys that I thought were fun. So of course, the person who inspired this was a friend of the show, Killian, and she includes some other ones that she got from her father. So not just her mother. So first one: my father used to describe a cheap person as someone whose arms are too short; they don't quite reach down to the bottom of their pocket where their wallet is, so they never pick up the tab or pay their share. I'm <laughs> gonna I like that one. Uh, also, she added another one. My aunt was, let's say, frugal. and her father described her as tighter than the paper on the wall and so miserly that she held onto a nickel until the <laughs> buffalo screamed. <laughs> I have another one that has to do with calling someone frugal to a fault. And a friend of mine, I think he learned this in Argentina, and what you do is you like hold up your elbow and you tap it. And basically, that means you're telling someone that they're so cheap, or you're describing someone as being so cheap that they would rather walk on their elbows than wear out their shoes.
1: Never heard of that one.
0: I know. Well, that's because you're not from Argentina. I thought that was a cool one. (laughs) All right. We also had some that had to do with the opposite of being frugal. So this one comes from John in Queens. He writes, my grandfather has a well-earned reputation for being frugal with money and an excellent investor. He spent many years as the treasurer of his local historical society. After giving up for a few years, he recently got a call from the new president asking if he would audit the books as they'd become a mess. I asked him how the new treasurer had managed to run it into the ground and his answer was, it doesn't take any real skill to spend other people's money. Which is basically like the story of me in college. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, there's
1: something in there about how people treat different money money that you find versus money that you earn.
0: Oh, here we go. Would you like to hear this one from Patrick? I would. On Twitter. This is a uh, Patrick writes again on Twitter money idiom I heard in Honduras. No cuesta, no cuida. And that means, and I'm probably butchering the Spanish there, but loosely it says, if you don't pay for it, you won't care for it.
1: There you go. I think that's probably true. Yeah. If you're willing to push out at least a little bit of money for something, you're more likely to use the service. To appreciate it, yeah. yeah.
0: The next one comes from Ahmed, and he included it in Egyptian Arabic. So if I ever need to write it, I can, uh, but I can't read it, so he was nice enough to also include it in English. And it translates to, the one he sent, the person who gets burned by soup will blow into yogurt. <laughs> what? I love this one! Uh, he writes, it means that when you see someone who is extra cautious about their money or investing de- decisions or really anything else, maybe give them a break and try to understand their position. So, maybe in the past, you know, they've been burned by soup, so they're going to be more cautious of yogurt.
1: I actually really like that. I know!
0: Isn't that one great? Yeah. Huh. Aww.
1: And it does. It applies to all kinds of things.
0: It does. Mm-hmm. All right. So, those are just a few that came in. Um, obviously, if you, our dear listeners, have a great idiom passed down through your family that you want to share with us, I would love to hear it. You can email us at answers at fool.com, or you can also send it over to the Twitters like Patrick did. Uh, we are at Answers Podcast, and you can even post it on our Facebook group because that's also a thing. Uh, if you're not already a member, search Facebook for Motley Fool Podcast. It's a private group, and we'll let you in if you knock nicely. All right, well, that's gonna do it for today, bro. Do you have anything you want to add? <laughs> no. Really. Why are you giggling like a schoolgirl? You're looking at me like I'm supposed
1: to say something. Oh my god.
0: Oh, you know why? Because this is a podcast, and what we do is we talk into microphones, and then
1: people. I <laughs> You just I can't. knocked
0: your headphones I into can't. the microphone. I can't. I'm sorry. You know this? That's on me. That's on me. I didn't explain to you what's going on right now. So, you know what? Let's just wrap it up. <laughs> the show is edited, thankfully, by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay Foolish, everybody.